changing fast and the issues are becoming increasingly complex from global warming to social change. Each of us has the capacity to adapt, creatively adapt to changing outside conditions, but we really haven't tapped into that much. And of course, the aggression is a sign that we're failing to do so. My name is Donna Jones. This is the Insight to Action podcast. This is the place where you'll gain insights and inspiration from innovative thinkers and doers in business who hold a higher vision for humanity. If you're interested in co-creating the future moment by moment, this is the program where you'll meet people like you. I've been talking to a lot of companies who dare to be different, and thanks to Doug Kirkpatrick from Morningstar Self-Management, I was introduced to Matt Perez. Now, Matt is the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Nearsoft, Inc., which is a dynamic self-managed organization dedicated to helping software developers grow their teams. Matt's based in San Francisco area, but Nearsoft operates worldwide. Doug considers him both a pioneer and an expert in the workplace of the future, so we're going to find out why right now. Matt, when you started out in the beginning with Nearsoft, what was the problem that Nearsoft was inspired to solve at the very beginning there? Well, at the beginning, it was a very personal problem for me. I I spent my whole career on the uh, product development side. So I've been through six startups, worked for some microsystems for nine years, and it was a lot of fun. I said, I always built in product, right? And almost always had an, a component of outsourcing. And that was the thing. Everybody insisted that... It was cheaper and faster and developer on the sun and all this other stuff. And so, you know, I just I tried it and tried different ways and I kept trying to make it work and it just wasn't working. I wasn't saving any money in the end because when you took into account the frustrations and the trips and all that, I had left my last startup and I was speaking to a friend of mine about all these problems and what I was looking for, et cetera. And, uh, and they said, you know, if we could do this in Mexico, it would be a no-brainer. And in terms, you know, talking about quote unquote unquote outsourcing, I remember going home that day and thinking, huh, maybe there is an opportunity here if I can figure out how to do this closer. And 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 so it went it went from there. So it was a personal pain that I had that I wish somebody had solved for me. And given that nobody had solved it satisfactorily, I I went around and figured that if I had that problem, that other people had that problem. I talked to a bunch of friends of mine. They say, oh, yeah, if you were closer, it would be so much nicer and blah, 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 blah. That's, that's where it started. You know, what's, what's fun about that story is that uh, a lot of companies have been started through, through those sorts of things. If I have this problem, that's how Skype began. I mean, way back when they, they, they had a problem between the three of them working in Estonia and Denmark and I believe Sweden or Finland perhaps. And, and the only way they could solve it was by coming up with what ended up being Skype in the end. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now, so in other words, what, what what the problem was initially was this whole outsourcing thing was getting extremely costly, but you've taken it to someplace different, and and I appreciate the inspiration that you, that that's behind what you've done because you've really tackled your approach in Nearsoft with culture as a competitive advantage. Right. So let's talk about what what is that culture. What do you do inside that sets you apart? Because there's lots of companies that talk about it, but not that many that, that and they'll sell it, but they, they won't necessarily do it. You're doing it. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So to be honest, it wasn't like we said, oh, we're culture, strong culture is going to be the solution to our problems and all that. Uh, it was more of a general intention that we had at the beginning. And 
my partner is, is a lot younger than I am, very dynamic guy and, and all that. But he was very aligned. We were very aligned that particular in a bunch of issues, but in this one in particular, that we said no titles. And so we started from the symptoms, you know, so problems that I've seen before of hierarchies and going up and down the hierarchies, just solve a simple problem and things like that. And so one of the things that we said was no titles. And one thing led to another, and we kept saying, well, let's run things more communally. And, blah. and when you're small, it's, it's easy to do it that way without any much thinking, basically. But all along, all along, I was thinking, well, at some point, we're going to have to you know, put some structure in place and, and hire some managers and blah, blah, blah. But then the more we did, the more enthused we got about keeping it that way. We didn't know exactly how. We had the good luck of uh, running into the book by uh, Ricardo Semler called uh, Seven Day Weekend. And that's actually his second book. He had written another one 10 years earlier, or eight, yeah, eight years earlier, uh, called Maverick. And in both of those books, he describes in pretty good detail how he went about changing the culture at a uh, basically a factory that he had inherited from his dad. They built industrial machinery for companies around the world, and, and they had the same problems that everybody else had, and he wasn't satisfied with how they were going about it. And he's, he's still a visionary. Uh, he's now in, into education and stuff like that. But So we read his book, and... And uh, it was very, very inspirational. I mean, it was one of these things where you go, you know, slap in the in the forehead kind of moment. And then we kept reading about what other people were doing. And we read the, the book by uh, Chip Conley called Pete that was also very influential with us. And just kept piecing it together to make it fit for us or work for us. And then what we noticed is that the more we did that, the the, the more obvious it became that that approach, that that way of running a business, people were happier. People took more ownership of the problems. There wasn't complaining per se. It was more of a, hey, this is broken. I'm going to fix it. And so it also became very obvious that it became very, it was very attractive for, to, to find new people. And, you know, that, that's always been our, our, one of our core functionality and our, our, our big pain is finding good people to join the company. And we discovered that this approach was attractive to people, not just us, attractive to other people. So one thing led to another, and we just got more and more serious about it over time. Found World Blue along the way, and and things like that. So uh, and we can talk about World Blue later. But and the other thing is that it it had an impact on clients also. So clients noticed that the our folks were not wallflowers. They they spoke up, and if it was again, if they saw something wrong, they spoke up about it and and went about it and fixed it, etc. And it, it, it all came out of the culture that we had inside the company. So um, it took us a while to recognize that what we were doing and, and kind of put our hand, arms around it. And, and, oh, my God, this is self-management. You know, but it, we went at it that way rather than from the top down, this is the way we're going to do it kind of thing. Well, I appreciate that because it's a whole lot more organic and it allows you to kind of deal with things as they surface and make decisions in the moment. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I found interesting, what, what you just said, is that I have heard when you bring software developers in on a contract basis into companies, there's no real attention to loyalty. There's no loyalty to the company's success. So, you know, they bring them in for short term and, and there's no real reason for anyone to sort of say, hey, this is not right, you know, to wave the red flags when the red flags need to be waved. Right. And and it sounds like what you've done by providing the space in your company in Nearsoft is that your people can aren't afraid to sort of say, hey, there's a problem here. We need to deal with this now. And 
that's huge in terms of cost savings. It's, it's huge. I mean, it's huge benefit for, for the customer. It's huge benefit for the, the individual involved in that. I mean, they're happier. They, they like what they're doing and they, they have that sense of ownership. And I, I hesitate to say meaning, but they do, you know, they can talk about it and say, this is, in fact, when you look at a lot of our guys on LinkedIn, they'll say developer, blah, 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 at our client's name. So they, they won't, you know, it's not that they're trying to hide Nearsoft. Nearsoft is, is the one right below it, right? But the one on top is the one where the part of the team are our client's company. And I, I thought that was fantastic. And our, our clients liked that as well. The business also has adapted to the model. And so, for example, we only work with companies on a long-term basis. So if somebody's on the phone saying, oh, I'm, I have a project three months, et cetera, et cetera, not politely say thanks, but no thanks, because that's, that doesn't fit. I mean, it fits our model in the sense that it will give us money, right? But that's not all there is to it. And so it doesn't fit our, our, our strategy in the way that we, that we know can provide value on a long-term basis. We don't know how to do it on a short-term basis, not, not well. Well, and the other thing you've mentioned also is about happiness. And, and I recall a, web, a program I was listening to on neuroscience that, that happiness, it creates focused minds. Unhappiness is a wandering mind. It's a mind looking for the next job. It's a mind just getting through this current one. But that happiness, the capacity to create happiness in the workplace is a competitive advantage. Yes. It, it, so here's the thing. So it's not just the happiness of, uh, ha-ha, let's have a party. We, we We do a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of social interaction among people and i think that's that's really core to to uh, how we operate is that people not only you know work together etc but they go out to dinner and, and do things together and rent a house on the beach and that kind of thing so that's important but that's not really the the happiness i was talking about is it's the satisfaction i guess that comes from owning something it, it being mine it's not like somebody's coming to tell me what to do every day but here's a big problem we are all working on this. How can we go about solving the problem, et cetera? It's that kind of happiness that I was talking about. And the other aspect of happiness, by the way, is happiness and playfulness go hand in hand. And the more playful you are, the more creative you are. Because that means you, you have no fear of the environment. You're, you're playing. You're trying ideas out, et cetera. And that's how, that's how creative things happen is, is by people playing around with things. And in fact, you'll hear people say, oh, I was playing around with this. And guess what? I could do it this particular way. And it happened to be a light bulb. And so, yeah, that's another aspect of what I think we, we've been lucky to have in the company is, is people are playful. People are not afraid of trying things and screwing up because uh, we go, oh, wow, you screwed up. Let, don't screw up that way anymore. <laughs> Find a new way to screw up. But And our clients support that as well. That's, I mean, knock on wood, we've been very lucky with that. Well, there's some happy accidents that can come out of screw-ups, and, and the, the post-it note was a happy accident. It took 10 years for the company to figure out it was, but, but, but that's because they didn't have that experimental creative mindset at the time. And if you don't have that creative experimental mindset, if you don't have that playfulness embedded in, in your, your working relationships and in the environment you're in, I think you're at a real disadvantage because uncertainty and complexity demand that kind of agility, that kind of willingness just to dive, deep dive and, and, and experiment your way into a solution. Yeah, yes, that's, that's, that's really key. 
Let's look under the hood at the inside. If we just step into the inside of the workplace culture in Nearsoft, and I know there's some people that are nervous about the word culture, so let's pretend we didn't say it or I didn't say it from the get-go and just say, all right, let's take a look at how you get things done on the inside. What makes you different? Okay, so if we just landed in one of our offices and looked around, it wouldn't look any different. Everybody would look the same and the, the, the physical environment would look the same, etc., what is different is that if you ask uh, who's your boss or or what's your manager or because there isn't any any fixed hierarchy like that. There's no a priori I'm your boss and, and you're some, this guy's boss and things like that. So that's that's number one. And uh, it doesn't mean, which is another thing that people fear, is that oh, so you have no structure? No, no, quite the opposite. We have a lot of structure. In fact, we have more structure from my own experience, right? We have a lot more structure at Nearsoft than you would have if it were just you know me or my partner running the show. Because then, in that particular case, the, the only structure you need is go ask the boss. Are, are we going to do this this year? Okay, go ask Matt. As are we going to do it this way? Go ask Roberto. You know, and, and like that. So that's the easiest thing to do in the hierarchy is you you define who's the boss, and that's that. We don't have that, so we've done things like. Well, first of all, we started with defining our values. That was that, that probably was the first thing that we decided to do. I was at first I was against it because my my experience of the values was just you know one day somebody put a picture on the wall that had like ten bullets and oh those are our values and you look at them and you go wow they sound really good and that's it that was the end of it and I thought no don't waste the time don't don't bother people with that kind of BS but. We listened to um, actually Tony Shea talking about how they define their values, etc. And uh, we thought, okay, uh, well, maybe it does make sense. Let's let's give it a try. And we defined it. Now, how we define that? I think it's important to, to describe that little exercise. Is we used what what are called innovation games. You can look it up. Innovationgames.com or Cantaneo.com. And so anyway, so so we. We read the book and, and new look and look and stuff like that. And so we went about playing a couple of innovation games to define our values. We were about 50 people at the time and uh, broke up in about five or six teams. And every team decided, first of all, what was important to them individually. Then we, together as a group, what was important as a group. And then we ended up with 14 candidates for values. And we played a final game called Buy a Feature. And by a feature is basically you list these 14 things, you give people quote unquote money, and they get to put invest money on one feature or another, in this case, one value or another. And the, really the magic of that process is the discussion that goes on. Because it's down to things that are very important to people. People will speak up, even the guys who normally don't, don't talk. In fact, I, I was, I was in, in my team. I didn't, I, uh, Roberto and I and a couple of other people didn't participate directly. We were the note takers and picture takers and things like that. But there were these two women in my team, one which was a bullflower. She, she hardly ever spoke. And another one that was quite the opposite. She was very outspoken, you know, very much of the typical leader type of person. And we were down to one, the fifth, which was, was going to be the, the fifth value. And it went back and forth, back and forth. And guess what? The wallflower, quote unquote, was the one that had uh, uh, won the day. With the with the you know the other the other woman embraced the uh, the values. Not like uh, okay, well I give up. No, it was more like yeah, let's do that. 
and he brought it out in that in her. So I thought if he did that for her in that particular situation, this is a good a good technology to have. So we used innovation games in quite a, a number of other times, but particularly when we have to do these kind of group decisions and with big teams you can't just bring everybody in the room and hope to God that it works. You have to have some structure again around that. So we used that quite a bit. We used it again when we were, def- were defining our, our mission. We defined a five-year mission back in 2012. That's also part of the of the structure that we have. And use a similar kind of process to, to get at those four points. So there's the, the decision matrix that we define also as a team. And uh, that defines about 24 or so types of decisions. So not specific, you know, decision or that, but the types of decision. By types, what do you mean by types? So, for example, fate of the company is at the top of the list, right? It's the first one. Fate of the company is, are we going to sell the company? Are we going to buy the company, et cetera? Well, who initiates that? Well, it's by, by law, it's that to be, it has to be the board, right? But the second column is, who gets to give input on that is everybody. So that means that, yeah, the board will get, uh, let's say, the call from, from a company saying, hey, we want to buy you, et cetera, and uh, work out the, the details and, and see what the real offer is. But at, at some point, we'll have to put it in front of everybody, get input. And in that particular case, we're not obligated to follow what the consensus is, right? But given the people that the board is, you know, we probably take that very seriously into consideration. So if everybody said, no, don't do it, this is terrible, we probably wouldn't do it. At the other extreme, at the other end of it is hire and fire kind of situation, also very important. But that's one that each team handles handles that. So, for example, uh, let's take a recruiting somebody new. A recruiter, and we have you know, people have their roles and they're expert at their own thing. So we have recruiters, and recruiters will come up with a person and say, hey, we have a candidate for, I don't know, Java developer. And um, four or five people will sign up to be in the different phases of the interview. At the end of it, we get together, we, we uh, grade the person both on technical skills and cultural skills. And uh, we make right there, we made a decision whether to hire the person or not. It doesn't have to go to any managers, it doesn't get any approvals, it doesn't... Because the thing is, we all know what our values are, we all know what our mission is. So, that's it. You don't, you don't need to know any more than that to, to uh, decide this person is the one that you need. And you need, and you know the needs of the client and the you know needs to be, be to fulfill. So yeah, that's the end of it. So those people get together, they make a decision, they make an offer. And oh, by the way, in order to make an offer, they need to know what other people are making in the company that are doing the same things and what and and that's all those numbers are open by the way. So salaries, sales, every number that we've been able to think of is is open. In the company, anybody can, can get access. So, any anybody in the company has all all the the wherewithal to make those kinds of decisions. So between those and firing is the same in the same level and races. We don't obviously we can't promote people if we don't have a hierarchy. So you can't be senior anything because there's no junior anything. But there is levels of maturity, and there's you know some people make more money than other people, etc. Because they contribute more. But again, all of that every one of those things are decided by what we call leadership teams. Each leadership team takes care of that, and they'll, they'll involve other people as, as we've defined, and uh, keep notes. By the way, that's very important, keeping notes and making them public and, and publishing their, uh, their conclusion and, and making them public as well. That's, and that's all part of that structure that we've, we've been putting together over time. 
two things come to mind. Uh, let's just talk a bit about the decision-making matrix because one of the things I see companies fail to do, and that is measure the impact of their decisions on not only their people but also on their clients, and they lose touch completely with what impact they have on the larger world. I mean, obviously, through your participative process, it's already woven in in terms of employee, so that's clear. But in terms of the bigger picture, impact on customers and so forth, how do you monitor the impact? So two, two ways. The, the more informal way is if, for example, we had a leadership team about two years ago. It's, no, it's the third year. Yeah, so about three years ago. They had uh, decided that, you know what, the way that we handle bonuses at, at the end of the year, what we do is whatever money is, is left in the, in the kitty at the end of the year after putting some uh, capital away from next year, et cetera, is divided amongst, amongst us, right? And, and there was this formula. It was public. Everybody... It, it, I don't want to say understood it, but it was public to everybody, but nobody understood it. <laughs> Very few people understood it. So these guys decided, nah, okay, that's too complex. We need to make something simpler. And uh, they called for a leadership team. People signed up to be part of it. And they came up with a decision that, you know what? We're, we're just going to divide by N. So if there's $100 left and 100 people in the company, everybody gets a dollar. That's it. End of story. They presented to everybody, and there was there were some questions and stuff like that, and some minor complaining, if you will. But that was it. And so ever since then, we've been doing that, dividing by N at the end of the year. But right after that, we had an all-hands meeting for, for that. And right after that announcement, a couple of people came to me because they knew that I wasn't happy particularly about that way of doing things. And I said, oh, but, you know, there's a problem. I said, yeah, no, I understand, but why don't you start another uh, leadership team? You know, let's give this guy a year because that was a, that's been the agreement. We're going to give this guy a year uh, to see how it works. And, and then you start another leadership team. And guess what? Nobody has. So that, in a sense, is a measure of are people so unhappy with it that they're going to bust? Well, since they haven't started another leadership team to create an, a, an alternative system, then it's probably okay. They're probably happy with the way it is now. At the other extreme, a more formal way of doing it is we're part of, and we've been doing this since 2008, we use Great Place to Work. What they do is they deploy a questionnaire to everybody, and I think 80% of the people have to respond, and then they give back the, the statistics, not who said what, but in, you know, in, in an um, aggregated way, where pe- are people happy about this or unhappy about that, et cetera. And I, they have like several categories and uh, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but so when that comes back to us, we have somebody from Great Place of Work come in and explain the numbers and, and all that stuff to everybody. And now we have three offices, so it's a little bit more difficult because I have to do it three times. So we go through that so people understand what how to read these numbers. And then, again, either through innovation games or some other ways, we come up with, okay, what are we going to work on for the next 12 months? And we usually do the obvious. We, we usually take the the one with the lowest score, even if it is a relatively high score for the industry, but the lowest score for us, and think about how, what can we do about this, and can we crank it up, etc. And we do a similar thing with um, the World Blue. So World Blue is uh, about freedom-centric organizations, and again, they they also have a questionnaire that we deploy. We get the the and they have t- ten principles defined by the way, which also are we've adopted our principles. Then they ask a bunch of questions around each specific principle. 
And uh, and again, based on those, you know what grade you got this year versus last year, and you try to improve the ones that went down or have been low for a couple of years or whatever. So that's a more formal way of of keeping track of things. And we do we talk to our clients all the time, so we know what impact we're having and and stuff like that. But it, it's I mean, it sounds almost like a sales pitch, but it's not. Is is people are just super happy. Well, there's plenty of room for initiative in there. I mean, you just described if you see something wrong, you've got the space to start solve it. And so you're not waiting for somebody else to solve it. You're not delegating the well-being of yourself and and, and the company to, to some boss. or just, You have to actually jump in. That's very powerful. Uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. We went to uh, talk to one of our clients. They have a fairly new, she's been there almost a few months, uh, VP of engineering, and we wanted to go talk to her, et cetera. And it was funny because, quote unquote, her complaint was that sometimes it, she couldn't tell who was near soft and who was, you know, their direct employee. So, you know, I, I thought that was great. And she, she thought it was great too. I mean, she wasn't complaining per se, but she says, you know, sometimes we're, we're doing our financial planning and stuff like that. And I have to ask people, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Is, are, is this person an, a near soft person or? One of ours here in, in San Francisco, and but I mean, it tells you that that the teams are so well integrated that uh, that's an issue. You know, somebody has to watch out for. It, so you're just keeping track of people, which is hilarious. So huge value creation through that kind of a, a philosophy and approach. I want to talk to you a bit about transparency. I can imagine that if you've come from a different place where all the salaries were secret and da, 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 you'd be a little bit freaked out by the idea that your salary would all of a sudden be on, on um, public viewing for everyone. Transparency does quite a few things. It can build trust or it can it, it activate fear. What, what has it done for you and what has it done for the client base? So we, we did the salaries are going to be public thing early, early on. So it's, it's been part of the company from almost from the beginning. And Here's the thing, because I also get a lot of that. Oh, really? You and I tell I try to tell customers on day one, even before they become customers, because I figured if we're going to scare them, let's scare them now. And so I see the thing about you know all our numbers are public, including our salaries. You invariably, if somebody in the room that goes really or makes the face that says really, you're crazy. And my thing is, look, in every company, everybody thinks that they know what other people makes. Right, so you think that you know this person makes more than me, and this person makes less than me. Why? Because you know people people talk and they guess and they look at the car that you're driving. And the problem is that it's, it's always wrong. And the, the example I give people is if you don't like somebody in the company, you normally don't think, oh, but they make more money than they do. No, you normally think the opposite. You make up this thing in your head about, oh, they probably make more money than they do, and I don't like them. They don't do their work. Blah, blah, blah. And, and it just becomes a big problem as opposed to if that really bothers you, go and ask and, and find out for real what the person makes. And what you find is that they make about the same or, or, or less or whatever, but you know the reality. And then you can deal with the reality. The reality is that you're not getting paid enough, then you go raise that issue with somebody and like that. And I'll give you an example. So oh, let me mention one other thing. So we've had people when the, uh, our own employees that when they come in they hear that they go oh oh but I don't want my my salary to be known and then we engage in thing about okay why what are you trying to you know keep from other people and it's like well 
if I'm making enough, then I'd be embarrassed. Well, no, no, if you're not making enough compared to the other guys, that's a problem. You should bring it up. We'll fix it somehow. And, and then you see the light comes on. It's, it's, you know, it's different in different cases. But we had a case, this was like three years ago, four years ago, of one of our guys, one uh, the guys in the team, that normally people walk in and say, oh, we need to know what developers make or whatever it is because we're doing somebody's assessment and, and then we're going to do a review of their salaries and whatnot. And this is, you know, a, another leadership team doing that. But uh, normally people don't ask for everybody's salary. This guy did. He walked into accounting and he, he asked, I think we had two people in, in that area at the time, and he asked for everybody's salary. And so the controller asked me, he says, can I give myself, yeah, it's public, I mean, why, why couldn't you? And uh, so she did. And about three weeks later, he sat uh, me down a couple of other people and showed us this analysis that he had done of salaries and people that what people were making in different uh, levels that he had made up. And he had done this this terrific job of analyzing our our uh, our salary story history. It made it very clear that we we had some things to take care of. Again, it was a benefit that I didn't even think of, didn't expect, and he came from this guy's individual curiosity, and he wanted to know, and and then discovered that things were not what uh, what they should be. And it was one of these things where we couldn't fix everybody's salaries on day one, so we did over a couple of years, but, you know, eventually we, we took care of that. And we try to keep going back to that analysis every every year or so. To our clients, is is in fact, just before this interview, I had what we call a kickoff with a, a brand new client. And, and one of the things that we say is, look, if there's any problem with the individual in your team, first take it up with that person. The team should talk to them. If the team, you know, can't resolve the problem, then involve me or or whatever. But first talk to the person. And there's a question of, well, but can I talk to them about, you know, how they're behaving or their, their performance? And yeah, that's exactly what we want you to talk to them about because then you can directly say, hey, look, this didn't happen and that didn't happen, as opposed to me saying, well, such and thus says that you didn't do this or you uh, this didn't work as well as you promised or whatever. Why put me in the middle? Go talk to the person directly. They're adults and, you know, you, you guys will figure it out. And only if things get out of hand, then drag me into it. I've never been dragged into a problem. Things get resolved and oftentimes I don't hear about them. And that, to me, that's, that's the ideal way of, of doing things. If you if you need a, you know, somebody to help you with your marriage, et cetera, yes, you should do it. But I think we can all agree that that's, that's crisis mode. That's not the normal way that things should happen. And it's the same thing in any kind of human relationship. So. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Let's clear up one assumption that the listeners may have, because one thing we hear a lot in, especially when they're hearing, okay, it's a flat organization, it's a lot of transparency, people can take the initiative, all the things that we've talked about that Nearsoft, that represents or what Nearsoft is all about, and they'll say, well, that won't work here because we're small, we're medium, we're large, I mean, pick a number. <laughs> Monday, yeah, I know. It's Monday, it's Tuesday, I'm short, or who knows. Can we talk a bit about what your experience has been in terms of growing your company, scaling a flat organization that you, where you've been able to adhere to what, what your experience is, both in terms of numbers, but also in terms of the experience? So one thing that, that I mean, I don't know for a fact, but I, I can imagine that it's a lot easier to be the kind of company that we are because we did it from the start. And so we've been able to, so as we grow, as we've grown, 
in scale, we face different problems, but always coming from that position of, you know, we want to be flexible. I, I, I hesitate to use the word flat because, in fact, there's a lot of hierarchy in the company, but it's, it's dynamic. It's, those leadership teams are basically on-demand hierarchy, but they come to solve a problem and then they go away. We don't have managers. We don't have a hierarchy. In that sense, yes. When you come from that, you, you'll you always, I mean, once you, once you have a hammer, you, you want the thing to look like a nail. And we have to, we are flat hammers. So when we look at a different problem, we try to nail it down in a, in a way that it fits with our environment. So yes, it is a lot easier to be that way from the start. It is not impossible to make transition. In fact, Doug Kirkpatrick, that you mentioned before, is uh, the person who introduced us. That's what he's doing these days, is helping companies make the transition. The key there is having the principles, whether the CEO or the owners, whatever you call yourselves, you have to be really clear on, okay, control is not an important thing for me, and I'm more than open to learn how to go about uh, distributing that control to people, etc. So if, if that's the intention, if that's where you come from, it'll work. Where there's a will, there's a way, and you'll figure a way to do it. If you're doing it because your board told you to or because it's fashionable or because, oh, if we don't do this, we're, we're not going to get the millennials or some nonsense like that, then, don't, you know, save everybody a lot of pain and effort. Just don't do it. Just stay hierarchical. Tell everybody what, tell everybody what to do and it'll work also. Well, for a short time. Yeah, for a short time. And, and that is people will be as satisfied, really. Uh, and that's that's the thing that drives me is, you know, it's just making people, again, not happy in the ha-has and the happy, but like deeply satisfied. And if the answer is yes, let's do it. If not, let's think another way of doing it. If you are a hierarchical company, there's a well-defined set of people at the top. I can tell you right off the bat that you're not at the top. You're in the center of a network that you're not even aware of, all right? But if you're not at that point where you want to make the transition, then it'd be really difficult. It'd be impossible to do on the other hand, you don't have to know the answer to everything. You can you can start with just the intention, and there's lots of people that can come in and help you and to do it, etc. The other thing to know is that people will want this. When when you end up at the other end of the other end of the of the path, you know where you where you are in this environment, people will want it and will defend it and and uh, will make it work. Because I also heard people say, well. You know, I'm more than happy to do it or more than willing to do it, but my people are not up to it. I would have to fire a bunch of people. No, no, people, look, those same people that you claim are not ready for it, they're adults, they go home, they make huge decisions about their lives and their families' lives, and, you know, do we buy a car, do we spend money on this, do we do that, do we move to a different place? They're fully functional adults. They become children when they come in the door of your place because that's the way that things are uh, structured, right? And if you want to go number one or number two, they have to raise their hand and, and you get to say yes or no. Forget that as an excuse. People are capable of doing this. Well, you've just given some great tips for anyone else, any CEO, you know, prospective startup standards on, on how to actually go about this. So that's fantastic. I think the key thing that I appreciate about what you've just been saying over this conversation is that, and we've, and we've heard this before, but you've, you know, again, taken it apart and, and looked at the mechanics of it, is that, that you can have hierarchy, but it's how you use the power. In this case, you've got hierarchy, but you're distributing your power. So you know, you don't have to get rid of hierarchy per se. It's more about how you use, you know, how you distribute the power inside the company. Right. 
And unfortunately, titles have such a having people with titles. I mean, theoretically, is that's not a problem. It could be people could have titles, but this it carries so much baggage in our in our larger culture. We started by getting rid of those. I mean, we have. So my partner and I are, are the CEO and the CEO, respectively, because we deal with the outside. And we tried at the beginning to say, oh, we're co-founders and things like that. And and invariably people go, yeah, but what's what do you do? What's your role? And, okay, I, I know what you want. I'm the CXO, okay? So just pick a letter. But, no, we we eventually said, okay, you're a CFO. You're, I mean, the CEO, you're a CEO. Okay, fine. And so we, we introduced ourselves that way, but... Um, it's outside. On the inside, there we're just us, and in our roles. So, if it comes to sales, if it comes to strategy, you know, that, those are our roles. But for example, I don't go into to the recruiting team and, and tell them what to do, or I tell them what what I need, you know, and, and I work with them, etc. But not, oh, you have to do it this way, etc. So, no, it's absolutely not not that way. And, well, you know, it's funny what you've mentioned because I've, I've interviewed uh, on one of my webinar series that I was doing a, a company in Stockholm. In, in Sweden, you don't have to have a CEO, so they were just able to take the get rid of the position altogether and distribute the responsibilities throughout. And then in Denmark, a company that was modeling its culture or modeling its design, its organizational design off of what, um, what CRISP were doing in Stockholm, they, in, in Denmark, you have to have that, that name, that CEO name, and so they have it. But you know, <laughs> on the interview I did, the CEO is the only one who doesn't have a name tag. So it's just they've done it in name only. But it's you've raised an interesting point because there's so much security about the label, especially North America, where we just need the label. Oh yeah, now I know what you're doing. You're the boss. You know, it's like yeah, no, that's not the case actually. So I think we're going to undergo a massive shift in language, letting go of fixed set mindsets around what language is all about as well. Yeah. in the new models that we're seeing coming out, which Nearsoft is, is a great uh, role model for. Yeah, in fact, uh, another one that, again, just came up with this kickoff with a uh, new client is the guy who was leading that, that meeting is what we call, uh, is, his role is as success coach. He's fairly new in the company about six months or so, and as he's talking, he said something about, oh, we'll have somebody from our, uh, what they say, from our, recruiting department or something like that and i made a mental note of talking to him and saying okay remember we don't have departments so let me explain why that's important because again you say department and people think the traditional department we have like i said people that are recruiters and are really good at it and etc we have people that are really good at uh, people development and that's what they do and but uh, but no we don't have departments because again that's another it's another artificial boundary that you're creating it that impedes your performance and, and what you do for, you know, for yourselves and for your clients and for the world kind of thing. So no, any, and again, we're very sensitive to that kind of thing. Anything that sounds like, Oh, you're putting up a wall here. It's like, Nope, let's go tear it down as quickly as possible. Excellent. Excellent. Tremendous work you're doing at Nearsoft. Anything else you want to add that, that would help companies that are looking at either making the transformation or doing it from the beginning? If they're doing it for the from the beginning, like I said, there's it's a lot easier. There's a way to do it. There's plenty of examples out there, and and you know, Medium has went at it that way, and uh, Buffer went at it that way. You can look at them as examples. We publish a lot of stuff that we do, and also I highly I would highly recommend going to one of the World Blue events. There's one every year, 
because then you're you're in the pack with other people that are are doing it and are living it, etc. It's like I don't know if you watch um, Dog Whisperer, Cesar Milan, and and the one of th- one of the things that he uses when the dogs are really bad is that he brings the the ba- the dog that's really disturbed into his pack, and his pack is very healthy, and they they do all the they know how to socialize, etc. And just by hanging around with the rest of the pack, the the quote unquote bad dog eventually learns how to be a dog. So World Blue for me is like the pack that you go hang out with to, uh, to um, I don't know, just absorb how the people talk and, and, and what they talk about, et cetera. And also we're very open if, in the sense of if you want to come stay with us for three months to kind of get a feel for what things look like and be parts of uh, leadership things and stuff like that, talk to me. We're very open to, uh, to have people come in, even if you're in a quote-unquote competitive company, because we don't think of competition. We think of we're all, it's a big environment. You know, we all happen to be working in this end of the environment. One day we're going to go for the same client and not, I'm going to lose, going to get him. But you know what? I don't see us losing and getting him. It's like, they're a better fit for you for whatever reason, and not for me, then fine. That's That's life. But yeah, so any anybody wants to come hang out with us for a week to a month or whatever, let, let us know. We're more than happy to to host you. And they'll go to where to to do that, Matt. What's your con- contact info? Oh, so uh, my email is mperez at nearsoft.com. Probably the easiest thing to remember. I'm also on Skype, and it gets more complicated. So start with the email uh, or phone number. My phone number is four zero eight six nine one one zero that's 408-691-1034 and just call me and you can go to the Nearsoft website at nearsoft.com Matt thank you very much for being on the program great conversation really appreciate it lots of insight here thank you Donna I'm Donna Jones I provide personal growth for business mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision-making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fromInsight2Action.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A, 